Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and this is an interview show. This week, I'm interviewing David Hawkins. Mr. Hawkins, would you please introduce yourself for our listeners? Um, Hi, my name is David Hawkins, and I am uh, the editor-in-chief of a brand new nonprofit nonpartisan news website based in Washington called The Fulcrum. And what did you do before that? So before that, I was um, at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call, Congressional Quarterly, also known as CQ, and Roll Call, uh, which were two very two different companies that merged about 10 years ago. CQ, which was all about covering the policies of Congress. Roll Call, which was all about covering the politics and the people of Congress. Uh, and I was um, a managing editor and a senior editor there uh, since the 1990s. Uh, I started in that world uh, the day Newt Gingrich became the Speaker of the House in January 1995 and had 20 fun-filled years of watching Congress. Sadly, I mean, they were fun-filled because it was a great story, but it was all about really watching a Congress that when I started uh, worked. It kind of worked as the as the civics textbooks said it was supposed to work more often than not. And my career at CQ and Roll Call was mostly about watching Congress become more dysfunctional the gridlock set in, the partisanship become more tribal, uh, the rhetoric become coarser. And uh, so it was time to uh, try and address that issue more more frontally, which is why the fulcrum. And I'd like to talk about that for a minute, because the fulcrum is this kind of really interesting and I'll say very ambitious uh, project. As a matter of fact, uh, you talk about in the fulcrum's website, you state that you see American government as defined by dysfunction. And I think the fulcrum, it appears, is designed to fix a number of the ills in the American political system. So I'd love to start by asking you this kind of broad question, which is, what do you think is the current fundamental problem or problems in the American system. What are those dysfunctions you talk about? Oh, wow. Well, that, that, is a, that is a great question. And we could spend all afternoon talking about that without getting to the happy stuff. First of all, I would just say the fulcrum is not out to fix this stuff by, on our own. We're out to sort of cover those who are trying to fix it. Uh, but we do think that there is um, there's a lot to be fixed. Um, what is the central challenge? Uh, there are a lot of professors and a lot, of, a lot of people trying to think of what is the central challenge. I guess the central challenge is uh, that we have become so polarized as a country. Uh, and there are several um, aspects of the way the government is currently run that are perpetuating that polarization, not trying to ease it. Uh, the money in, money in politics is one of them. Uh, the way congressional boundaries and state legislative boundaries are drawn, this whole issue of so-called gerrymandering is another one. The the lack of confidence that people feel in their government because half the country uh, feels that the government is working for them, but absolutely half feels that it's not at any one time. Uh, so a lack of a, a, sort of a lack of a cohesive sense of what's the government for, what's it all about, and and who has our best interests at heart. Uh, I think is sort of is sort of at the core. Um, you know, we've come we've come to the point um, recently this summer uh, where we couldn't even really agree as a country as to what the meaning of July Fourth was anymore. Um, so that sort of to me su- suggests that that we are really at a point where 
there's a lack of trust uh, and a lack of hardened positioning and a lack and an unwillingness to compromise that I, I think is at the core of, of the dysfunction. Now, you noted that the, the fulcrum isn't trying to fix uh, that kind of pro- those problems, uh, but rather that it's going to try to kind of highlight on the individuals who are doing. So what is the fulcrum going to do that is different or has been different from other digital outlets and or from the more traditional outlets like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal? So one of the reasons that we are starting um, the fulcrum or have started the fulcrum is that it is our uh, assessment uh, that the, 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 the reputable, the very reputable uh, mainstream media outlets that you just sort of alluded to, the Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, National Public Radio, the major cable TV network, uh, cable TV networks and, and um Magazines, all of them, that, that they are not really covering dysfunction, the, the, the brokenness of democracy as a story, uh, the way we think the public wants to hear. Uh, some of this, some of that, I think, is related to the current situation where, you know, the Washington Post, for example, now has, I think, nine or maybe it's 10 people covering the White House. The president makes news at all hours of the day and night, uh, seven days a week. It's a, it's a fire hose of news coming out of the White House. Some of the people who are some of those job positions covering the White House have come from places that, that that used to be in our space. For example, there used to be a couple of people covering money and politics at the Post. Now there's just one person. There used to be other people covering sort of civic education. Now that beat is going empty. So we feel like there's an opening for us, and we feel like the public uh, is yearning for this. There's There's lots of polling, and the polling is pretty consistent, where if you ask people even an open-ended question, uh, what do you think is the main challenge uh, facing the country right now? A very large percentage, sometimes even the dominant percentage, say the brokenness of the system is the main issue. So we feel as though worthy competitors are doing, they're doing a wonderful job covering lots of aspects of the of the national story, the, the, the story of the Trump era, which has its own particular challenges, but are not covering sort of the underlying efforts to fix things that in some ways don't really have to do with the president. I mean, some, some people are asking me, is the, is the fulcrum really just another way of covering uh, President Trump? And the answer to that is no, that President Trump, uh, and, and emphatically no, um, President Trump has challenged democratic norms in his own way. He has made lots of news in, in our space, but we, are, we created the fulcrum not because of President Trump. The issues that we're covering preceded his administration and well, very likely many of them will be around uh, once this administration is over, whether he wins re-election or not, for the next president to address. And we want to set up this debate in the country so that in, we want to set it up quickly so that people thinking about what they're going to do in 2020 uh, can think about how if, they, if democracy reform is really one of the things that is driving them to the polls, to have them an understanding of which candidates are talking about this and how they're talking about it. Now, when you say that you have a very thoughtful understanding of what you say about uh, the mainstream journals not covering brokenness. But one of the things that uh, polling data and a lot of individuals kind of think about when they think about brokenness is the President Trump fake news hashtag, right? Uh, And so they don't have kind of when they criticize those mainstream outlets, they don't have maybe the thoughtful position that you're taking here. So how in a world in which, in fact, even trying to find a niche for yourself can come off as partisan. 
How do you uh, position the fulcrum in the era of fake news suggesting that the mainstream is missing some of those beats, but not in the kind of, I think, fundamentally critical way that, say, uh, President Donald Trump would be talking about? I think obviously we want to be we want to be credible. You know, we, we say right at the, at the top we are we are nonpartisan um, as well as nonprofit, non-ideological. We are we. What I like to say is we are rooting um, for the system to get better, but we don't have any prescriptions about how that should be. In other words, we don't we don't take a stand uh, that any proposals of any of the presidential candidates is is going to be the big fix or that any of the proposals that are coming out of Congress are the big fix or in, in the state legislatures. We're trying to play it as down the middle as possible. We are trying, we are very interested in having people on both sides of all along the ideological spectrum uh, read what we write and trust that it's true. To that end, we want to make sure that we have voices in our stories from all along the political spectrum, and not just from along the political spectrum, but from the geographic spectrum, from around the country, from not just inside the Beltway, but from places around the country where are pretty far removed uh, from the hurly-burly in Washington, but are trying things on their own. Washington, although we are physically, where I'm talking to you from, is, you know, just a few blocks from the White House, uh, that's just an accident of where I live. I mean, we could, we we don't... um, we don't presume to think that Washington is where even most of the energy on trying to make make the country work better is happening. The majority of it is happening uh, in state capitals, in city halls, uh, in classrooms. I mean, civic, the whole notion of civic education is a huge issue that we want to be covering. Um, so having a diversity of voices from around the country, from along the ideological spectrum, from communities that have felt left out of this. I mean, people, uh, to, you know, to be honest, we need to do a better job of making people um, who have been mostly concerned uh, thinking that the economic system doesn't work for them, people, communities of color, black in black neighborhoods, Latino neighborhoods, that democracy not working for them either is also an issue that they should be paying attention to. We want those people to tune in as well. And we want to find the people who are helping that happen and quote them in our stories too. Now, what is, and this has been a long problem with new digital services, and that is how do you reach out outside the Beltway and how do you get individuals in an era when there is a so much information coming at us? As a matter of fact, it's one of the big tasks of uh, digital literacy today is just trying to figure out what to read and what to look at. How do you get the fulcrum in people's uh, viewing and their attention? How do you get them to come to the, to think about the fulcrum as even being somewhere they should go to? So that's obviously that's the question that's keeping uh, uh, all of us on our small uh, but dedicated team up at night. That's what we think about all the time. Um, I think here, I think I'm going to say it um, this way, which is um, we see getting that done is a sort of a three-part three-part test. The first thing we want to do is become, for lack of a better word, the trade journal for the democracy reform world. There are dozens of groups, most of them pretty small, a few of them in big, you know, you've heard of, maybe you've heard of Common Cause, or you've heard of the Center for Responsive Politics, or this group called End Citizens United, or the Koch brothers, that are um, that are in the world of fixing democracy in various different ways. Um, there are a lot of little groups. Uh, they don't really talk to each other. 
There's a little, some rivalries. They don't really have a media hub. Um, the guy who's helped create create this says, uh, with with uh, with me and our colleagues, says media is the miracle grow of political movements. That if you can find a, a political movement, it needs a media home. So we want at the start to be the trade journal for the people who are already interested in democracy reform, who belong to these groups, who feel energized and activated. If we can do that, then the next step of growth is to become a trusted source um, that policymakers around the country pay attention to, and maybe even some other media. We would like the people, the folks at the at the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post to be reading our stuff and say, hey, that's a smart story. We should do that. And then if we get attention that way, sooner or later, our hope, our expectation uh, is that we will permeate the consciousness of the person who wakes up um, it, you know, in Norman, Oklahoma one morning and says, gosh, I don't believe my democracy is working for me. Where do I go to plug in? And hopefully when they go online and search democracy reform, uh, the fulcrum will come up and they'll have a, they'll have a way to plug in. So that's that's our big goal, right? Just being just being the trade journal for the insiders um, is just is just the first step. The the ultimate goal, um, you know, why I'm why I'm a journalist and have been since I was um, my in my early twenties was I want to help people uh, become better citizens, inform them so that they can go and make smarter and better informed decisions, and that's the ultimate goal. I want to kind of narrow us just a little bit because, you know, you have long, as you've mentioned, long covered Congress. I've watched many of your roll call whiteboards in the past. And one of the things that is very interesting about the fulcrum and its status position is, is it seems that it's probably a little bit more focused on Congress than many of the other outlets. I think you kind of even earlier mentioned uh, maybe being a little bit too identified with the White House and therefore uh, losing some of the other beats. Uh, specifically, even you argue that con- you want to make Congress, quote, more effective, ethical and civil, end quote. So how do we do that? And do you see the fulcrum as being a part of that process? How, how do we make that happen? Well, we certainly see covering the people who are trying to make that uh, part uh, sort of our role. There, there is a whole cottage industry here in town of people who, uh, who, who, like me, have watched Congress sort of seize up in the last couple of decades. Um, have seen it become, I mean, in some ways, Congress is a reflection of the, the people who are in Congress or a reflection of the people they represent. Countries polarized, members of Congress are polarized. Um, there are lots of different efforts to make Congress work better. Uh, some of them do involve spending a little bit of money. Congress has starved itself uh, for about 10 years now. The Congress has actually its own, it's spending on itself. It's not politically popular for Congress to spend money on itself. Congress has a very low approval rating. Members of Congress respond to that in some ways by saying, well, if we have a very, by making matters worse, they have a low approval rating, so they don't spend the money on themselves that might might improve their approval rating by having, for example, uh, paying their staff better, having more people, stopping the brain drain in Congress, not just among members of Congress, but among their staff. Congress is, is losing a lot of, a lot of brain power. They're losing it perversely to K Street, to the lobbyists. Lobby shops can now spend young congressional, pay young congressional staffers two, three times what they're making on the Hill to come and join the, join the swamp and, and try and help the world of lobbyists and advocates run the Congress that they just left. So anyway, that's a, that's, there, there are lots of different ways um, to make Congress better. But the, um, I'd say the core of that is persuading 
the country and the politicians have to do this first and foremost. They have to pers persuade the country that it is in their interests, it's in the country's interest for Congress to work better, to stand up against the president, whether it's Mr. Trump or his Democratic successor. Congress as an institution has ceded a lot of power to presidents of both parties in the last 25 years. President Obama grabbed a lot of part, uh, power for the executive branch. George Bush, the 43rd president, Bill Clinton, they all, every uh, presidents all want power vis-a-vis -vis Congress. Uh, and they've succeeded because Congress hasn't really stood up for itself very much. Now on that topic, because this is particularly interesting uh, to myself, is that one of the consistent opinion pieces that I have uh, seen on the fulcrum and one that I've, I've heard you talk about as being a reason that Congress has been less powerful in relationship to the presidency has been the issue of transparency. Uh, and I, I've always been happy to see that because it's one of the things I actually stress to my students is, you know, the Constitutional Convention was one of the least transparent bodies in American history, uh, but the outcome is one of the most revered things we have. Uh, you've said even that uh, Congress, by being such a transparent place, creates a situation in which, quote, people make histrionic speeches, end quote. So what would you say about this idea? Because I think it's a unique and interesting one about Congress being too transparent and that breeding uh, partisanship. Well, I think I think I think there's something to it. I mean, it, it's it's pretty it is, as you're suggesting, pretty counterintuitive. Most people believe that I mean, one of the oldest cliches, uh, you know, in governance and journalism is sunshine is the great disinfectant. Right. That the more sunshine you put um, uh, act, uh, institutions or people or, or animals or insects, you, you put a lot of sunshine on them and they're going to clean up their act. Um, and I think in general that has proved true, but there is there is a dark side to all this transparency. Uh, we had one of the first stories we had on the fulcrum was, it was a terrific story by my colleague Jeff West about showing quite clearly um, how members of Congress use the transparency of the TV cameras, the TV cameras that now cover almost everything that Congress does. They play to the cameras. Uh, they make very impassioned speeches uh, that appeal to their political bases. Uh, and they raise a lot of money off of that to, for their campaigns. Uh, and maybe if, they, if the cameras weren't on all the time, uh, these speeches and this using the transparency of Congress as a political fundraising tool wouldn't happen quite so much. Now, I'm not totally persuaded by this. I want to. I mean, I think it's it's an interesting thing to think about um, because I do think that for every time you have the cameras, the cameras are on Congress plenty, but there are plenty of opportunities already for members of Congress to talk to one another. Um, candidly and seriously about policy, about cutting deals when the cameras aren't, aren't on. Um, the only problem with that is that in our current environment, members of Congress rarely spend time with one another when the cameras aren't on. Uh, they spend the vast majority of their time when the cameras are off, not studying legislation, not talking to their aides, not talking to their colleagues about making policy, uh, but dialing for dollars. They actually, they don't do it in their own offices because uh, that's against the rules. They actually have to cross the street uh, to their campaign headquarters to, to spend lots and lots of time on the phone that they could be spending doing their legislative work. They spend dialing for money. Congress gets a bad reputation for so taking so many recesses, you know, they, they meet for three weeks and then they go home for a week. Um, 
and oh, it's a paid vacation. No, I don't think I don't think that's so true. I think most of them work pretty hard when they're back home. I think the times when they're not doing the people's business, you could argue, is more often when they're in Washington, uh, and instead of being at the Capitol, being policymakers and doing oversight, uh, they're across the street in their campaign headquarters trying to raise money. A related topic to that. And that is, and recently we've even seen this come up with uh, President Trump's uh, tweets, which had set off a firestorm recently, uh, arguing that uh, four U.S. congressmen should go back to their home country. Uh, What do you say, how does the fulcrum cover news in an era in which not only is information coming over social media, but when all of the major participants are engaging in social media, what does this do for the system? And how do you see the fulcrum is interacting in that? Uh, these are great questions. Um, I think one thing is, so the, the fulcrum, as you, as you said at the very start, we, um, we have ambition, um, we have generous funders, but we don't yet have, we're still, a, we're still small and scrappy. Uh, there, are only, there are only seven or eight of us. Um, and so we cannot hope to um, cover the, enorm- the enormity of the news fire hose that president is generating. And, and we don't think that people, that people have a lot of great places, a lot of really great places to read um, about what the president's doing, what uh, Speaker Pelosi is doing, what her liberal uh, progressive, um, uh, I won't say antagonist, but the liberal progressive caucus and the House Democrats is doing to make Mrs. Pelosi a little bit agitated or a little bit cooperative. There's, there's lots of places to read about that. Um, we want to do something different. Um, so if there is going to be a story about, um, for example, uh, would the president's, I, I think it, I'm, I'm Alarming that I even say say the words president and racist in the same sentence, but I think these were patently racist um, uh, tweets about going, you know, go back where you came from. I mean, this is an old, old racist trope. Um, we more or less let that go by with other people covering it. Uh, to the extent we did cover it, it was as a, um, there could be a civic education component for us or a um, good governance component for us, but we're not going to try and cover the, the, the day in and day out. We couldn't possibly keep up. Um, we pay attention to social media. We're trying to obviously, like every other news organization, we try and use social media, not just to promote our own stuff, but to find out what our readers are interested in and what stories are working for them and what stories they'd like to read m- more of and less of. Um, but we can't, we can't possibly hope to, uh, to have our finger on the national social media pulse. It's exhausting. I think that's what you were, uh, what you were pointing to a second ago, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to pay, pay attention to. It also, of course, and this may be sound a little bit simplistic, but social media, I believe, is, um, has not been a contributor to the, the better discourse, to the repairing of democracy's ills. Um, when you live in a world in which um, people are firing off opinions at 180 or 200 and 360 characters at a time, um, not a lot of subtlety there. Um, the president has sort of obviously made his political mark by being unsubtle in his use of Twitter. Um, so it's hard. It's hard to do now. And this brings me to another many of the li- uh, listeners for the politics guys and others. They will say, I agree with you. I like these kinds of state and goals. Uh, so, Mr. Hawkins, could you tell us for the citizen who has bought in and says, I do want to help and understand this? What's the kind of best news 
uh, personal policy that one might take. In other words, how can someone make themselves part of democracy being better? How can they be better informed? What would be the steps that you suggest for that? Well, well, obviously, that would begin with going to the fulcrum.us and signing up for our newsletter. Um, but, but beyond that plug, um, I mean, I, I absolutely believe that um, and what I encourage people who want to be sort of media literate to do is first thing you should do is find at least one thing to pay for. Um, this stuff is not, you know, good journalism is not free. We are very, very lucky uh, that to, at least to get off the ground, we have some generous funders who are getting us off the ground. Uh, eventually, we're we're never going to charge a subscription that I can imagine. We may eventually go to uh, a little bit like your public radio station where you can click a button in the corner and make a little donation or not so little donation. Um, but you should, but, but, and to circle back to what I was saying a couple of minutes ago, the big media organizations, especially the big newspapers, it costs money, a lot of money, it costs a lot of money to cover the White House 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it costs a lot of money to cover, you know, way, way more money to cover conflict around the world, uh, to cover politics, to send reporters all over the country talking to voters, not just following the candidates around, but talking to voters. This stuff costs money. So I always encourage uh, people to find something that they feel like they trust and then actually pay for it to keep it to keep it going um, and to, to and then after that to find a diversity of opinion you know no um, everybody no matter what their ideology um, everybody should watch Fox News a few hours a week and everybody should watch MSNBC a few hours a week just to understand if you're going to want to be a news junkie what each side is saying um, a, a breadth of, you know hearing in the first amendment is the wondrous amazing unique phenomenon in the history of the world that it is so that it can protect that diversity of voices. And we're lucky to continue to have that diversity of voices in this country. And everybody should um, feel sort of flattered and, and privileged to be able to go down that buffet line of different voices and sample them all. In addition to the fulcrum, is there any outlets that you personally keep up with? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Well, what are your favorites is why I guess what I'm really asking. (laughs) Um, my media diet is, um, is, you know, I, I have to get way overstuffed before breakfast. I read about nine different, uh, I read two different newspapers, uh, that are actually come old fashioned on, a, on dead trees delivered to my doorstep. Uh, and then I read about nine different, um, email newsletters in the morning, uh, and, you know, listen to NPR, keep an eye on the morning TV shows, the whole deal. Um, that's too much for somebody who's not, it doesn't, isn't required to do it. Um, find a few things that you trust and at least one thing you don't trust and give that a shot too. And on that note, one of the things I found uh, personally refreshing about the Fulcrum was the fact that it is primarily text. Uh, I, uh, I'm i the age where it could be that I'm a, a video consumption, but I, I often find that to be a little bit overwhelming. So one of my uh, kind of follow up questions here for you is, is the, is the desire for the Fulcrum to be text based? Is that because of it's a scrappy startup or is that a purposeful choice about how you think deep stories can best be told? Um, I. I think it is a bit of both. I think that we do there, there, you know, I think we want to tell stories. We want to, um, to, to torture this media diet metaphor just a little bit. We, we want to uh, feed people with our stories, however they'd rather have it. Um, because we're a scrappy startup and because 
doing your own video production is a little bit expensive. Um, we haven't gotten to that point yet, um, but we'll get there. Um, we certainly want to have, we certainly, I th certainly think that in addition to text, we want to do more with graphics. One of the things that I think people are yearning for is good, is good data that they can look at so they can make up their own mind. I mean, if you want to cover the, pay attention to um, the way money is influencing politics, um, there's, a, you know, just understanding the numbers and where the money is coming from and how it, where it's going and just seeing charts and graphs and pie charts and flow charts is very helpful. Um, so we want to do more of that. But I also do think that, that maybe this is, this is, this is my tradition as somebody who's been mostly a text-based journalist now for, uh, several decades, uh, is that there's nothing, nothing beats good expository writing and trying to boil down the complex in a way that, um, is digestible without being simplistic. Do you think that those kinds of long form stories will continue to have a space in the social media environment? I mean, one of the big issues, both for listeners, for students, is they get the kind of the BuzzFeed version of the headline. Uh, yeah. and so how do you get people to actually click on the story, engage in those stories uh, and to, to think about them, especially these kinds of more complex issues in a way that's going to take more than 30 seconds? Yeah, tough, tough, tough challenge, obviously. Some of it is, um, I mean, the phrase bait and switch sounds pejorative, but sometimes if you write a, you never want to write a misleading headline or a clever way in, um, and then, then people have sort of fall, fall into your story in a, in, in a smoothly, in a smooth way, then suddenly they realize they've, re they've, they've read, read farther in than, uh, than they might have thought. So you don't want to be misleading about it, um, but you do want to be enticing. How do you make that enticing? I'm always interested in a journalist perspective on that one. Well, I'm in, inclined to, you know, talk about kittens. And uh, <laughs> um, I, used to, I used to say that the, uh, you know, the, the, the autobiography of the great media mogul of the 21st century was going to be called Sex, Kittens, and Cheney. Sex, Kittens, and Cruz. Now it's Sex, Kittens, and Trump. But, you know, I mean, that's what makes it enticing. You can't, it can't, obviously that's not what we're doing. Um, or, or now AOC, the number of pictures of, of Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez on the media now is sort of astonishing. Um, but when she put a picture of her in your story, it generates web traffic like nothing else. Um, you know, so, so I don't know. I don't know if that's the, again, that and finding our readership is what keeps me up at night is trying to figure out a way to write stories that, that people will want to read. Now, I know the fulcrum is really new, and so I want to really kind of finish up with here, Mr. Hawkins, is uh, you've had a name change. There's been some shifts, and you've kind of really started to hit the ground running more recently this summer. What is the plan for the remainder of the year, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that? No, no. The, the plan for the remainder of the year is, I mean, is to refine just what we've been talking about. We want, I mean, we want to have a site that people want to come to where they will they will learn about the challenges of democracy and the and the efforts to make them better in a way that is not like you know eating your vegetables, but that can be fun. I mean, there are you know some of this is hackneyed to those of us in the in follow the media. I mean, there are top ten lists. There you know so called listicles. Uh, there are maps. There are charts. There is good expository writing. There's got to be a mix of it all. Um, the, the plan for the rest of the year is to 
is to try to experiment with different things, see what works, hope that our readers give us good feedback. Um, more than more than anything, um, we want to uh, have a news report and opinion pages that, that get people ready for the next election where the challenges of uh, the, the, the frail democracy are going to be uh, on the agenda. Lots of Democratic candidates are talking about it. The president talks about it in his own way. There's a lot, going to be lots of um, referendas out in the states. There are going to be several uh, states that are going to talk about ways to, to change map making, to change campaign finance, to make it easier to vote, some places to make it harder to vote. Um, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot to cover. Um, and we just we, we want to interact with our readers and have them in part sort of tell us what's the most important thing they want to hear about and how do they want to hear about it. Now, on one, my last question for you is simply as you move into that area, I know that you're interested, as you've just mentioned, about what listeners are, or readers, in your case, are going to think is most important. For those who want to be involved, what do you think it will be the most important policies, the most important issues they should pay attention to as our races begin to heat up? Oh, great question. I think I do think um, that limiting the influence of, of money in politics is going to be an issue. Uh, that, that lots of people are, lots of candidates will, will be talking about. Um, I think that coming up with different ways, as, as some of your listeners may know, uh, earlier this summer, the Supreme Court said itself that it could not uh, rein in uh, partisanship in the drawing of political maps. Um, some candidates will be talking about that. There are some candidates that will be talking about um, changing the way the Supreme Court works, changing the way government ethics rules work. Um, I guess um, I think that the overall thing to look for is which candidates, if you're interested in democracy reform, which candidates are putting this high on their list of things to talk about. A lot of different things vying for the candidate's attention, vying for the voters' attention, economic security, environmental security, national security. Um, those are the, you know, those are three really big and important ones, and I don't want to talk any of them down. But there is a view, which I think is an important view, which is none of those other, none of the issues that other people think need to be addressed, healthcare, the environment, job security, income inequality, the tax structure, none of that stuff is going to get fixed unless this period of gridlock ends. And the only way this period of gridlock is going to end is if democracy works better. So we sort of feel like fixing democracy is the key to unlock potential for progress on lots of other things. Appreciate your uh, time, Mr. Hawkins, and I appreciate you sharing all of your thoughts with the politics, guys. Thank you so much, Trey. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the politics, guys. I'd like to take this moment to ask that if you are interested in becoming a supporter, you can do that by checking out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics, guys. Or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. Your donations make interviews like this possible. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share with us, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politics guys. Subscribing to the show really helps us get out episodes, but so does word of mouth episode uh, advertising and we greatly appreciate it. Leaving reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use helps us 
immensely. Thank you so much. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morano, Andra Maskey, and Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by me, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. I hope you'll join us then.